As the kids leave, the size shrinks. It's a good thing. I won't go into the grounds for why that's a good thing, but. Um, we're going to continue the study of Acts as EC has been leading us through the book of Acts. Uh, I have the privilege of going through Peter's sermon. EC actually graciously allowed me to have that passage and has gone beyond it a little bit. So we're coming back to Acts 2 um, and looking at what Peter says. Um, but again, as, as EC has been preaching through Acts, he's been rightly pointing out to us the fact that this is a revolutionary message. Uh, it, it is a declaration of revolution in how God is shaping the world and what God is doing in his people. And so as we look at this passage this morning, there is a, an overall sense of radical change. Um, it is different because of what has just happened with the work of Christ and what is immediately preceding this message, this sermon, with the manifestation of the Spirit in the church on Pentecost. So let me open us in prayer and then we'll get into the sermon. Heavenly Father, we come to you as your people because you have given us the privilege of gathering. Uh, you have brought us together as one people who belong to you, created by you, redeemed by you, sanctified by you, for the purpose of a revolutionary work. We do pray, Lord, that you would open our ears, that you would help us to listen, to understand, to comprehend what you're telling us, to, by the power of your Holy Spirit, act on what we understand. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us that depth of intimacy that the Spirit indwelling us gives, while at the same time you work through us and in us to accomplish the purposes of your kingdom. Father, we pray this morning that you would meet us in this time, and that in meeting us you would change us. I, I do reflect on that quote on the front of the worship folder, that the Holy Spirit is not given to allow us to rest in comfort, but is given to move us to act as the disciples acted in their preaching. And Father, we pray that as we hear from Peter this morning that you would be at work to build in us that same zeal, that same excitement, that same grasp of the revolutionary truth of redemption. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I need to give you the context of what's happening in Peter's sermon. Um, the very immediate context of it is that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the people in the upper room, and that as they left that upper room, they went out and preached. They didn't stay in the room. They didn't enjoy the blessing of the presence of the Holy Spirit and feel warm and fuzzy. They went out. They acted, they spoke, and in fact, they spoke in languages they didn't know to bring a message that the world needed to hear, as E.C., when he preached on this action of Pentecost, made clear that this is in some ways a very powerful reversal of Babel. It is the uniting of the people of God. All of history leading to the point of Jesus' work on the cross, his rising from the tomb, and the giving of the Holy Spirit was a winnowing, a narrowing. It was, 
It was a refining of the people of God to the point where that people of God was one man, Jesus. And with Pentecost, that reversal of Babel takes place in two particularly important ways. One, it is no longer man saving himself. You'll remember that when, when the people gather together on the plains of Babel to build this tower, that the Tower of Babel was all about reaching heaven. In reality, it was an accomplishment or an attempt to accomplish self-salvation. And so with Pentecost, there is an absolute reversal of self-salvation. Because there is a recognition that Jesus has accomplished redemption on our behalf. He has saved us. And on top of that, the radical change is who the definition of us is. It's no longer a narrowing down and a purification and a refining of the people of God, removing that dross, that refiner's fire of taking out the unholy, the uncalled. And now it's an expansion, a universality of the people of God being of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. We see in Revelation that, that there is a representative from every culture, from every group, together worshiping the, the Lord and Savior of the world. And so there is this clear sense in, in this immediate preceding moment of the reversal of Babel, but, but it's a reversal of Babel built upon the work of Christ. And so the context of this event, Jesus in John 14 through 16 has promised the Holy Spirit and, and and I encourage you to be looking at what Jesus says about the work of the Spirit in those chapters. Remember that that is his last conversation with the disciples as he's left the room where he's instituted the Lord's table, which we'll celebrate in a few moments. And is going to Gethsemane and he's teaching his disciples what's about to happen. And he's talking about the fact that he's departing. He's leaving because he's taking upon himself judgment for our sin. But he's giving the comforter, the encourager, the counselor. He's giving the Holy Spirit. And he speaks to the purpose of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just for our comfort. So I encourage you to read John, John 14 through 16. But Jesus then goes to Gethsemane, he goes to Pilate, he goes to the Sanhedrin, he goes to the cross. He accomplishes redemption. He pays the debt of our sin. We've just taken a moment in worship here to confess our sin. But brothers and sisters, we sin moment by moment. We need salvation. We need conviction, which is one of the purposes that the Holy Spirit fulfills in his presence among us. The disciples then received the Holy Spirit poured out in a manifest way with the tongues of fire. And then they act. And, and the very context of this passage of Scripture is that the disciples have have gone out and they've acted and they've proclaimed the truth that they know, the redemption of Christ, in languages they didn't know to everyone in Jerusalem. And there's two questions that structure this passage that we're going through now. 
and I want you to be able to see them. So in Acts chapter 2, in verse 12, the people who have observed what the disciples have done, the passage tells us the people were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? They've just witnessed something unbelievable. People speaking to them in languages about a message that is amazing, but speaking to them in their own language, not in Hebrew that unifies them. Speaking to them in ways they understand. What does this mean? Peter's sermon is an answer to that question. His entire sermon is dedicated to answering the question of these perplexed people, what the heck just happened? What is the meaning of what just happened? And so, I think we have to begin looking at what was in the minds of the Jews as they were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And again, Pentecost, we, we tend to think we've taken that name and it now means the bestowal of the Spirit. Pentecost is the feast of 50 days after Passover. It's a celebration rich in Jewish history that led to the people being in Jerusalem. And so they're there to celebrate Pentecost, and now all of a sudden they're hearing a message, and that message is about the Messiah. It's about what the Messiah, that they have waited for millennia to come and to act, did. And so one of the things I want us to understand is, is that as the Jews came to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, there had been a series of confusing events that preceded the feast. With, with the Passover, there was this rebellious guy who happened to be crucified. And it sort of upset the whole festival. Some people were talking about he was a special person and he was kind of a really important guy, but he died. He couldn't have been the Messiah because the Romans are still here. He couldn't have instituted the kingdom because even his disciples, after he rose, said, are you going to institute the kingdom in Israel now? And he put them off. It's not for you to know. So one of the things I want us to understand is that the Jews had expected a particular series of events. They had waited for a Messiah, the son of David, the anointed, to come and establish the kingdom that they expected. They had a sense of what they needed to be saved from, the Romans, poverty, hopelessness, discomfort. They had a sense of what it would mean to, to see that salvation established. The kingdom, the Romans are gone. We have power. We're, we are the happening country. Wealth, fame, acknowledgement, the fulfillment of our dreams. How like us? I want you to take a moment and I want you to ask yourself this question. What is it you long to be saved from? What relief do you need? What do you want? And I'm serious about the question, so I'm not going to... 
I'm not going to rush on. I want you to think about it for a couple of minutes. Jesus came. Jesus was the son of David. He was the anointed one. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior. And he accomplished a redemption that was so unexpected, so unlooked for, that the Jews didn't recognize that it had taken place. It was revolutionary. But it wasn't loud. It wasn't brash. Part of that redemption was the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was given privately to those in the upper room. And it was given in some pretty unusual ways because it was given to everyone. Now, if the Jews had paid attention, because the prophecy that Peter refers to in Joel speaks of the universality of the giving of the Spirit, but I think it's kind of unexpected. And E.C., when he talked about that event made clear that this, this was not just the 12 apostles. It was not just those hierarchical leaders of the church. It wasn't the 120 disciples. It was everybody in the room, which was Mary, Martha, many. But the Spirit was also publicly manifested to those in Jerusalem through the actions of those who had received the Spirit privately. And one of the things I think that's kind of an important thing for us to understand is that every believer has the Holy Spirit. The front of the bulletin has a couple of quotes, and, and I'm actually going to kind of break tradition and, and point out both of them. Tozer says that a Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan for God's people. In fact, if you look at New Testament teaching on the Spirit... It's clear that it belongs to every believer. The Spirit is given to each of us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? 
in, in another epistle, it says that we can't, we can't call Jesus Christ apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. Each of us is given new birth to a new hope through the resurrection of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But when we receive the Spirit, the Spirit accomplishes His purposes. And so there's a quote here from Pope Francis. To put it simply, the Holy Spirit bothers us because He moves us. He makes us walk. He pushes the church to go forward. Take a moment. I want you to think about that. The disciples could have stayed in the upper room. They could have relished the presence of the Holy Spirit. They could have had a wonderful time of fellowship. But the Spirit moved them out and moved them in such a way that they were witnesses, as Jesus said they would be, in Jerusalem. They were witnesses to those of multiple cultures. And if you look at the list, it's from those in the East, the Mede, Parthian, and Persian empires, as well as those in the West, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. Cappadocia. Um, the world came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and the world heard the gospel in their own languages. Because the disciples went to the temple and spoke in a way that got them in trouble. Because the Spirit moved them. Let me continue the quote. We are like Peter at the Transfiguration. Ah, oh, how wonderful it is to be here like this all together. But don't bother us. We want the Holy Spirit to doze off. We want to domesticate the Holy Spirit. That's no good because he's God. He is the wind which comes and goes and you don't know where. He is the power of God. He is the one who gives us consolation and strength to move forward. But to move forward, and this bothers us, it is so much nicer to be comfortable. The Spirit guides us and works through us to accomplish the continuing work of redemption. Jesus accomplishes redemption. But it needs to grow. Paul says that he wants to bring to completion the work of Christ. The Holy Spirit mobilizes us. The Holy Spirit presses us. And so the Spirit is given both privately and publicly, but he's also given universally to everyone in the room. Let me read to you the prophecy of Joel that Peter quotes. And in these last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood." 
before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a universality. Which is why the disciples go to those in Jerusalem and speak in languages of the world to bring the message of the gospel to the world. So I want to speak for a moment about that universality. To all in the upper room, it was male and female, apostle, disciple, all believers. And then to all who will believe, all flesh. Male and female, because it is sons and daughters. Young and old. Free and slave. Those are the ones listed in the passage. But if we start to think about the way that Jesus has done his ministry, we recognize that there are some troubling ways that Jesus did his ministry. He went to tax collectors. Traitors. Extortionists. He went to Samaria. He spoke to a woman in Samaria. Oh my goodness. Now we don't get the impact of that because we're so used to the story. But let's put it into a vernacular we would understand. LGBTQ. Who do you not like? Who would you really hope never darkens the door of heaven? Or maybe even who would never darken the door of our church? All flesh. Now, one of the things I think we have to keep in mind is it's to all who believe. But, but the universality of the gospel is it goes to everybody. Even those who are afraid. Me. I do a lot of work in Portland. Do you know that today is Pride Day? Celebration of homosexuality. But the Holy Spirit comes and he doesn't leave us alone. Francis is saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us alone, but he moves us to act out of our salvation, out of our redemption out of the transforming revolutionary work of the kingdom. And our calling is to invite others to join us in that. That's what Peter's talking about. So we're 2,000 years later. 
We've developed a lot of routines and a lot of traditions, some of which we've developed knowing the truth of Scripture. We can look back and understand the reality of what Jesus has done. We can see the history of how the Spirit has worked. We can see the missionary adventures. We can see how nations have been changed because of the work of Christ and the redemption he's accomplished and the Spirit has applied. And we see the ebb and the flow because nations change and nations revert. Europe was a Christian area. It, it is a post-Christian area today. One of the things that we're struggling with in America is that we are moving rapidly into a post-Christian culture. And it's a difficult stretch for us. There will be sacrifices for our faith because our culture is changing. And there are traditions that we've established that we have to hang on to, that we have to fight for, that we have to hold dear. But brothers and sisters, there are traditions that have crept in, that have been added to. There is a syncretism in our faith that needs once again to be purified. In the same way that in first century Judaism, they had expectations for what the kingdom would be that were so radically off mark that when the kingdom came, they didn't recognize it. And they said, what does this mean? The kingdom was there. The gospel was preached. The people saw the Holy Spirit work. They saw the miracles of Jesus. We're going to look in the next week. Peter saying, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. They saw the kingdom break out in their presence. And they still asked, what does this mean? I think that's a question that we need to ask. What does it look like for the kingdom to take control of Newburgh? Of CVP? Of me? There are changes that we're going to need to make. There are changes in the way we do kingdom that need to happen. And we talked about some of them. We have an understanding of what it means for our faith to live radical discipleship. Generosity, truth, compassion. We're working on that with safe families. That is a change. That is the kingdom breaking out among us and it's a wonderful start. But we're way too comfortable. We live in the familiar. And frankly, I'm a little bit scared of where God may take us. I don't really like Samaritans. I don't really like the other. First John tells us, how can we claim to love God if we don't love our brother whom we've seen? 
It's a community and a cultural issue. We have to change. There has to be a reset. We have to be compassionate. We have to be generous. We have to be selfless. We have to recognize, like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, that his needs were met. He wasn't giving all that he had and losing everything because he welcomed his prodigal brother back. The father didn't impoverish him, and the father will not impoverish us. But it might feel like it. It might be an act of faith. It's also going to be an individual change. And so in wrapping up, because I have three more messages to preach on this sermon, and I won't take the time and bore you to death, But in wrapping up, as we look at John 14 through 16, Jesus says that the Spirit is coming and will clarify the truth. He will bring to our remembrance what Jesus has said. He will convict of sin. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine coming to worship with a confession of sin that takes longer than 30 seconds? Can you imagine feeling clean? Can you imagine feeling free? He'll convict of righteousness. What would it feel like to really feel righteous? So what I want to ask you to do because I want you to think about the presence of the Holy Spirit this week. I want you to understand what it looks like to live dependent upon the Spirit. It's not that there is no safety net, but it's that He is our safety net. And we're safe. I don't know if you have a love of roller coasters. I have a tolerance of roller coasters. Because I don't really like the thrill of being upside down and spinning at really high speeds. But I like getting off the ride. I like knowing that I've gone through it and I've arrived safely. And I want to hear Jesus say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Spirit. Bother us.